episode three of the history of the women of England. Now I've said I'm going to tell that history through individual biographies, but this episode is a little different because it's a paired biography. It tells the story of the life and the circumstances of two women, Isabel Foster and Joan Warren. They came from very different backgrounds, but what they shared was their death. For on the morning of January 27, 1556, both were burned to death on Smithfield. This is, of course, a story about religion, and they were very much part of the Reformed religion. So we're making a very big jump from the last episode. Lady Alice Moore, who was prepared to go with whatever the official religion was, although her husband, of course, was not prepared to accept King Henry VIII as the head of the church. But now we've jumped forward into the reign of Queen Mary, skipping over the later years of Henry VIII. We've left him with four wives still to get through, and not even yet mentioned the reign of his son Edward, when England went briefly, at its head at least, strongly Protestant. Or the brief interregnum of poor sad Lady Jane Grey. We'll get back to a lot of that period in the next episode, but this one, being all about the religious turmoil of this age, ranges widely through it and looks at just how central religion was to women's and men's lives. Of course, most people just aim to get through life in one piece, were very keen not to be martyrs. But this was all about the salvation of your eternal soul, and about surviving the sweating sickness and so many other dangers in life. Getting it wrong was something many felt as very, very personal. And the swinging, sudden changes in established rules and verities were profoundly disorientating and frightening to many. We think of ourselves as living in a period of rapid, sudden change. But through this age, from Henry to Edward to Mary to Elizabeth, was a period of such sudden changes as could be imagined. There is, I admit, something slightly odd about a lifelong atheist. Well, I decided to become one at age 11, focusing on religion, but I'm not going to get very deep at all into the theology. What I want to do is explore how women experienced and influenced this time, and how Isabel and Joan came to die that January morning. I'm afraid that all sounds a little bit depressing, so maybe just to tell you at the end, we'll get to the two regular segments of the Book of the Week and the Woman of the Week. The Book of the Week is Bernardine Evaristo's funny, irreverent, ambitious, tightrope act set in Roman London, The Emperor's Babe. And the Woman of the Week is the 16th century Italian apothecary, Camilla Aculiani, who, in her letters on natural philosophy, could almost have been said to have invented Gaia theory long before James Lovelock. So that's what you've got to look forward to. And you're also going to hear a lot of women's stories, women's lives, women's own words, as they took part in the great debate of the Tudor age about the church. I feel like I should perhaps add a technical note here. I'm producing and editing this show myself, and I'm sure that shows. I hope I'm getting better. I used to do this what feels like an absolute age ago when I was editor of the Guardian Weekly and I produced its podcast. So the knowledge of how the buttons on Audacity work are in my fingers muscle memory, if not always in my head, and I'm trying to catch up with all the latest info. So to Isabel and Joan, martyrs. (laughs) 
At 7am on the 27th of January 1556, five men and two women were taken from Newgate Prison. They were walked the few hundred metres along Giltspur Street to Smithfield, the old smooth field that was used for the great annual St Bartholomew's Fair and a regular Friday cattle and horse market. It was also an execution site, with a tradition dating back to at least 1305, when William Wallace, the Scottish hero depicted in Braveheart, was hung, drawn and quartered there. On that January morning, the seven prisoners were tied to four stakes with iron chains, which would hold their bodies upright, even when their legs would no longer support them. The stakes were set in giant piles of lumber and brushwood. More wood was packed around them. They stood then while a sermon was read, probably from the gatehouse of St Bartholomew's Church, which still overlooks the site. The victims then said their last words. This had all taken two hours. Then the fire was lit. It was the first mass religious martyrdom in London. When I lived in London, I used to walk late at night with my dog. She was a staffy rescue from Battersea. But walking late at night past that great timbered gatehouse, over the very spot where a 19th century excavation found scorched human bones buried beneath the much-trodden earth, the stench of blood would hang in the air from the butcher's market. But the Victorian buildings are today surrounded by fashionable late-night nightclubs. And so what I would hear would be perhaps a sudden angry screech of a drink-fueled row, but it could have been a cry of pain. There's little, however, to mark the fate of the hundreds who died here. A 19th century plaque records five victims, all men, and there's a grander memorial for William Wallace. On that January morning, five years after the death of Lady Alice, and three years after the death of the boy king Edward, England was a country in turmoil. There was, and it was certainly shocking for some, a woman... Henry's oldest daughter, on the throne, and she was married to a prince of that hated rival race, the Spaniards. And England was back under what many in London, at least, saw as the yoke of the Pope, after a brief period of official Protestant fervency. The condemned women could have saved themselves with a word of submission. Remaining silent was a tremendous act of courage by Isabel Foster and Joan Warne, the two women who died that winter's day chained to a single post, and it will be followed by many similar acts of bravery. The details are so well known because of the work of John Fox, who began researching his acts and monuments, generally known as the Book of Martyrs, in exile on the continent. A copy of the 1717 edition survives today in Chelsea Old Church, the only of the great chained books left in London, a legacy of Isabel and Joan that would have horrified Sir Thomas. Modern scholarship puts the total executed under Bloody Mary, as she's often been known, at just under 300. Fox records 185, 44 of them Londoners. He continued the work in the reign of Elizabeth, when Mary's bloody five-year attempt to return England to the fold of Rome had been swept aside. He collected documents, spoke to witnesses, and produced a work of historical scholarship that, although it's often been questioned, seems now to have been solidly based. He was aided by a whole community in which women were prominent that copied and circulated documents in Samizdat form. There was, too, a contemporary check on any inclination he might have had to drift into enhancement of the story. Many of his readers and critics had witnessed the events he recounted or knew someone who had. His account of the lives of Joan and Isabel is probably accurate. 
Isabel was a married woman of 55 who'd come to London, probably as a teenager from Carlisle, in far northern England, an area that was to remain staunchly Catholic for decades after her death. It's likely that she'd spent much of her life comfortably within the Catholic Church. Her conversion was probably an individual act, for there's no evidence to suggest that her husband John, a cutler in the parish of St Bride, shared her opinions. The parish, though, was a haven for the reformers. The Reverend Cardmaker, who was martyred a year before Isabel, having been a vicar there. Isabel was sent to Edmund Bonner, the Bishop of London who played a central role in the persecution, for failing to go to church. It might even have been her husband who reported her. The other woman who was burned that day, Joan Warne, also known as Joan Lashford, was from a family of dissenters. Aged just 19, she had never been a Catholic. In age, she was typical of many of the adherents of the Reformed religion, which was interpreted by some as a rebellion of youth against their elders. As Queen Mary was starting her move to reverse the religious revolution of her brother Edward, with a sermon preached by Dr. Bourne at St. Paul's Cross, a diarist recorded a great protest from, as it were, like mad people, what young people and women hurly-burly and casting up of caps. Edward's reign might have only lasted seven years, but many, particularly in London, where the reformers had parish strongholds through the doctrinal twists of the later years of Henry, had known nothing but reformed religion. They'd been taught to consider the beliefs of their parents and grandparents as superstitious popery. Joan was not, however, rebelling against her family. First her stepfather, then her mother, had been burned in Mary's persecution. Their daughter came to the comfort of the authorities after faithfully ministering to the comfort of her parents in prison, although many other relatives of martyrs did the same without comeback. She was arrested by John Storey, Bonner's Chancellor, and sent to the bishop. Let's think about this. This is a 19-year-old young woman facing the Bishop of London. Initially, she was jailed in Poultry Comptoir, where she spent about five weeks. A century later, a prisoner provided a description of the shock of arriving at the Comptoir, which is unlikely to have changed much. Foul, sweaty toes, dirty shirts, stinking breaths and unclean carcasses poisoned our nostrils far worse than a Southwark ditch. Joan was then moved to Newgate, where she spent several months. Fox reports that she said that both the said sacrament, the Eucharist, absolution and the Mass with all their other superfluous sacraments, ceremonies and divine service, as then used in the realm of England, were most vile and contrary to Christ's word and institution. On being extorted by the bishop to return to the Catholic unity of the church, she replied boldly, If you will leave off your abomination, I will return, otherwise I will not. Remember, this is a 19-year-old woman facing up to the Bishop of London. She'd been born in the parish of Little All Hallows in Thames Street, beside the Great River. Her father was a cutler, and after his death, her mother married an upholsterer. That stepfather, John Warne, was 29 when he was taken in by Mary's inquisitors. He had a long history of dissent, having been sentenced to be burned for denying the sacrament of the altar soon after the execution of Anne Askew in Henry's time, of which more later. He was saved then by a general pardon but was burnt at Smithfield on the 30th of May, 1556. Fox records that he loudly encouraged his fellow martyr, the Reverend Cardmaker, Isabel's one-time vicar, who was thought to be about to recant. 
A few months later, Joan's mother, Elizabeth, was among those swept up in a raid in an unofficial congregation in a house in Bow Churchyard. Fox records her saying defiantly to Bonner and his men, Do what you will, for if Christ were in error, then I am in error. Fox says that her death was chiefly to be attributed to Dr. Storey, supposed to be a relation to her or her late husband, who for reasons unknown was against the family. Elizabeth was burned at Stratford, Bow, presumably because of the place where she was caught. Yet when Mary was placed on the English throne on the 15th of July 1553, having seen off the desperate attempt to place Lady Jane Grey on the throne, which would have retained the Edwardian reformist church. Such bloody persecution seemed far away. When the Mayor of London walked to Cheapside Cross to proclaim the new Queen, the celebrating crowds were so dense that he could scarcely force his way through. Belief in the rightful succession, respect for the daughter of a Queen whom they had loved, and hatred of the Earl of Northumberland had overcome the scruples even of those who had cause to fear her religious inclinations. It's hard to imagine Joan and Isabel celebrating, but many moderate Protestants felt that fealty to the true sovereign was the only option. Mary was the first woman to occupy the English throne in her own right since Matilda in the 12th century, and Matilda was not a happy precedent. But the Queen at first gave signs of reasonableness and religious tolerance. Many historians today think that Mary, so convinced of her own righteousness and the obviousness of it, offered signs of toleration because she was convinced that she'd quickly be able to draw the nation peacefully onto what she saw as correct path. Although one of the key factors in the turn in opinion was also Mary's choice of husband, Philip of Spain, son of Emperor Charles V. A foreign king was not what the city or the country wanted. There were demonstrations against the Spanish envoys arranging the marriage. But when Sir Thomas Wyatt marched on London in rebellion and the militia turned out for him, the city itself did not. Mary was, however, left after the uprising with little choice but to execute Lady Jane. The best educated woman of her generation went to the block on Tower Hill at the age of 16 with almost incredible composure. Her last words were carefully formed in a Protestant form. I do look to be saved by no other man, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. Since she did not believe in purgatory, her final request was, and now, good people, why I am alive, I pray you assist me with your prayers. Lady Jane instantly became a symbol of Protestant martyrdom, and the proselytising effect of the publication of her works and the year of her death was magnified when a poem purporting to be her last words was sold in broadside around the city. Isabel and Joan may well have read or heard of it. Broadsides were usually single sheets of paper, a bit like the newspapers of the day, relatively cheap, and they would have been cried out by the people selling them. They really got news of what was happening around. The next significant trial of Mary's power in London was Easter 1554, when mass was sung according to the old rite from restored altars. Many were troubled. Dorothy Griffin, who later was a sustainer of reformist prisoners, testified that she could not bear to attend St Andrew by the wardrobe because her conscience is troubled. Mary, as yet, did not have the full range of the law to bring against Dorothy and her fellow believers, although the reformers, particularly the preachers, were being arrested on increasingly thin pretexts. Then, 
Mary's third parliament, after accepting the rule of Rome, consented to the restoration of the heresy laws. Men, particularly prominent reform preachers, were the first victims. Then the persecution became more widespread. The first female victim was Marjorie Poley, who was executed in Kent soon after Joan's stepfather, as the persecution was increasingly directed towards the humble. In what must have been a particularly exquisite form of torture, Marjorie was carried out of town with a fellow martyr, Christopher Ward, but left nearby until after he was burned. Fox records that two martyrs, pinioned side by side on a cart, loudly sang psalms throughout the journey. When she saw the crowd gathered to watch the execution, Marjorie exclaimed, You may rejoice, Ward, to see such a company gathered to celebrate your marriage this day. Historians have used acres of print to debate just how far London and England were still Catholic in 1556. In many respects, this is a false argument, for the clear division between Protestant and Catholic had yet to be drawn. The church itself, its buildings and its priests had swung back and forth across several decades. And the whole idea of Protestant and Catholic is, to some degree, a modern creation. There was, of course, for the people of the time, one true religion. There were just the people who were wrong on the other side. But it's hardly surprising that individuals were frequently confused and had mixed beliefs, and sometimes very curious and definitely not church-approved of beliefs. Eleanor Dalloch had refused to attend St Mary Abchurch because the priest knew she declared nothing. She, however, knew how to make rain and had a book that foretold future events. Despite growing respect for the reformers' cause as a result of the brave deaths of the earlier martyrs, including Joan's parents, the majority of the crowd on the morning that Joan and Isabel went to their death was probably hostile. Beyond any question of doctrine, there was the belief that God's most holy word pronounces a plain sentence of eternal damnation upon all such be seditious rebels against their kings or magistrates. Furthermore, Heresy was a crime that all agreed was bad. Most, including the reformers, accepted the principle. It was the question of what was deviance on which they differed. There would nevertheless have been a significant number in the crowd who sympathised with the religious views of Isabel and Joan. That supporters should have wanted to watch someone whose views they shared die horribly is hard now to comprehend. We find it hard, I think to understand why anyone would attend an execution. But for the supporters, they were often able to comfort the condemned, shout out messages of support and faith to them, and those supporters drew strength from the fortitude with which the martyrs faced their fate. It was an important testimony that God was on their side. Some even hoped to learn the way to be a martyr. Some of the emotion among the crowd in favour of the martyrs came too from hostility to the clergy. Perhaps 4% of the entire male population were in holy orders in the middle of the 16th century. Minor orders were seen as a refuge for criminality. The lack of learning among the parish priests and curates was a cause for frequently justified complaint. But most critical of all, there was the ongoing conflict over church charges. This had been particularly acute in the 1520s when Simon Fish, in his supplication for the beggars, blamed the nation's poverty on ecclesiastical rapacity, but it had hardly reduced since. Priests also had enormous power, and sometimes used it lightly. At St Boltoff's Aldgate, at Easter 1523, 
The curate had excommunicated parishioners who'd reported him and his mistress to the authorities. The ideas of the reformers were also now, as Joan and Isabel went to their deaths, not so new. Luther's works had reached the capital in 1518, and the Christian brethren had been formed in the 1520s, counting among their number some of the most prominent men of London and their wives and daughters. Its aim was to preach and protect its own in a loosely linked network. In 1529, Anne Boleyn knew how to find Simon Fish at his hiding place in the city after he had sent her a copy of his supplication. The more mystical elements of late medieval Catholicism also sat ill with an increasingly educated, less trusting populace. In 1533, a, quote, letter written by Mary Magdalene's hand had demanded that a rich widow give up her gold to the church at the risk of eternal damnation. A hundred years before, this might, at least by some, have been greeted with credulous fear. Not so now. Even Sir Thomas More had written of, in his youth seeing at Barking Abbey, handkerchiefs sewn by the Virgin Mary, as clean seams seeming as ever I saw to my life. The relics had reputed to be hidden at the back of a tabernacle for four or five hundred years, till now that God gave the chance that opened it. A great scholar seems prepared to swallow this tale without question. Many now were less trusting, including, I'm pleased to say really, the widow to whom this supposed missive in Mary Magdalene's hand, saying hand over all your gold, was directed. Nevertheless, a great number, possibly a majority, had welcomed the return by Mary of comfortable and comforting images and rituals of the old church. It fulfilled the hopes of those such as Margaret Harbottle, who during the reform ascendancy under Edward had been bold or fearful enough to speak out. In 1551, as the sweating sickness was sweeping through London, she had denounced her curate. He and such as he is was the occasion that God did plague the people so sore, because that they would not suffer them to prey upon their beads. And thereupon, in despite of the king's injunction, shook her beads at the said Sir Thomas, saying contemptuously that she would know that he would know that she did and would prey upon her breeds, and that men did die like dogs because they cannot see their maker born about the streets as they have seen it in time past. Less than five years later, however, even Margaret might have felt human sympathy for the agony that the martyrs were about to undergo. There was something in the social position or character of every person in that group with whom the crowd could identify. In addition to the two women, the maid and the matron, and the priest, Thomas Whittle, one martyr, Bartlett Green, was of good family and well-learned, both in the schools and the University of Oxford. He is a pin-up for Fox, having been known for his dissolute youth, but adopting a meek, humble, discreet demeanour after his conversion. There are also two apprentices representing so much of the population of London. Thomas Brown, who was born in Ely, but a parishioner of St Bride, and John Tudson, born in Ipswich, but working in the parish of St Mary Botolph. Lowest in social class of the group was John Went from Essex, a shearman, that was a cloth worker, aged 27. The punishment, burning alive, was not as shocking to the crowd as it is to us. The clergy had been given the power to direct its use as punishment for heresy in 1401. In England, its use for heresy ended with the life of Queen Mary, although the punishment would continue to be used in secular justice. 
for women who had killed their husbands, which was known as petty treason, and women convicted of high treason, until 1786. The last woman to suffer the punishment for this offence was Elizabeth Gaunt, who is going to feature later. In these later burnings, however, a convict was usually strangled before or as the fire was lit. Denied this somewhat mercy, it's impossible to know for how long Isabel and Joan suffered. Fox sometimes records gory details in cases where the process went disastrously wrong or the victim was particularly famous, but did not do so in this case. The authorities were sometimes uh, somewhat merciful in allowing relatives or friends of the martyrs to attach bags of gunpowder to their body to hasten the end. But other times the wood was green or wet or the fire incorrectly laid. Fox records deaths that took half an hour or more. The months of waiting in jail for martyrdom were the torture preceding this final end for Isabel and Joan. And even before the authorities caught up with them, they knew that their actions were putting them at risk. The months in jail before execution could also, however, be a chance for concentrated prayer, meditation, study and reflection that prepared the martyrs for their fate. And as they gathered together to allow the stronger to support the weaker, Isabel and Joan must have feared not only their ability to withstand the pressure and the pain, but also whether they were stepping over the boundary from martyrdom to suicide. But Fox wrote of prison as becoming right Christian schools and churches, where the prisoners sustained themselves with prayers, preaching, most godly exhortations and comfortings. The developing ritual of martyrdom was also a great comfort. Fox wrote that his heroes and heroines often are so terrified and perplexed with small matters as though they are huge mountains. Being a proper martyr required great attention to forms and rituals. Modern psychological analysis concludes that these rituals were helping to dispel what Fox described as the demons of anxiety. On that final day, Joan and Isabel probably followed many of the same rituals as Cecily Orms, who was martyred the following year at Norwich. Fox records she come to the stake and laid a hand upon it and said, Welcome the cross of Christ, which being done, she looked on her hand and seeing it was blacked with the stake, wiped it upon her smock, for she was burned at the same stake that Simon Miller and Elizabeth Cooper were burned at. Then, after she had touched it with her hand, she came and kissed it and said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoice in God my Saviour. And in saying so, she set her hands together right upon her breast, casting her eyes and head upwards, and so stood, heaving up her hands little by little, till the very sinews of her arm did brust in sunder, and then they fell. On the day of their execution, the martyrs were operating too within a broader gallows tradition that must have swept them along in its script. They knew their beliefs would be judged by their actions. On the scaffold, felons, even common thieves, were expected to speak honestly not only about their actions, but about spiritual truths. This was perhaps one reason for the crowds. With the martyrs dying for their religion, the interest was even more intense. The root of the word martyr means witness, and their strength and faith were seen as a measure of the truth of their religion. Later Protestant writers discussing the execution of Catholic priests in the reign of Elizabeth, their convictions were for treason, not heresy and hence the punishment was hanging, drawing, and quartering, made much of the priests grabbing at the rope when the cart was pulled away as an expression of fear and lack of faith. When John Story, Joan's persecutor, ended his life on the scaffold, being hung, drawn, and quartered, much was made of his loud exclamations of pain during the butchery. The fact that their faith had, only a few years before, been the official religion, 
must also have played an important part in the reformers, female and male, being ready for martyrdom. The spread of printing was also vitally important, not just in the ability to spread the new beliefs, but in the solidity, the finality, the certainty of print, as opposed to manuscript. It had an aura of absolute truth that was a great force for the new faith. The Lollards, England's earlier homegrown heretics, had been just as fervent in their beliefs, but over several centuries they usually abjured themselves without undue pressure, rather than defying their monarch and society. Those Lollards who were burned, such as Joan Broughton, the mother of the wife of a mayor of London, who was aged over 80 when martyred at Smithfield in 1494, were usually relapsed heretics, caught a second time when there was no escaping the death penalty. For Isabel, Joan, Sicily and the other women martyrs, there were also more female role models that must have given them strength and helped convince them that they could endure the approaching fear and pain. Lady Jane Grey, whose memory was still fresh, was revered. But perhaps more important, because she was not noble, was Anne Askew, who was martyred during the reaction against church reforms with Henry's backing in 1546. Fox described her as a singular example of Christian constancy for all men to follow, and women. Isabel probably saw her burned at Smithfield. Joan might have also, since children were commonly spectators at such events. Anne was a woman who'd been educated on the same humanist principles as Lady Alice's charges, but who'd taken that learning firmly in the direction of reform. She left a full account of her sufferings in her examinations. Despite her education, her father had forced her into marriage with a rich but Catholic and uneducated landowner in Lincoln. He was apparently persuaded to throw his heretic wife from her home by the priests there. Anne then came to London, leaving behind her two children, to seek a divorce. She may also have been seeking the company and support of other reformers. It was this, rather than her religious views, that brought her to the attention of the authorities, for she associated herself with the party of Catherine Parr, Henry's last queen, and incidentally the sister of the next character in my tale, Elizabeth. The religious conservatives, Bishop Gardiner and Lord Chancellor Worsley among them, were determined not to just to bring Anne down, but to make her implicate the queen. In March 1545, she was the first gentlewoman to be brought before a London jury to be judged for heresy. She set the model. It was not a meek one. She displayed a fine wit, frequently setting Bishop Bonner back on his heels. After he rebuked her for saying that the Lincoln priests were against her, she said, My friends told me if I did come to Lincoln, the priests would assault me and put me to great trouble, as thereof they had made their boast. And when I heard it, I went there indeed, not being afraid, because I knew my matter to be good. Moreover, I remained there six days to see what be said unto me. And as I was in the minster, reading upon the Bible, they recorded unto me, minding to have spoken to me, yet they went their ways again, without words speaking. Then my Lord asked, if there were not one that dared speak to me. I told him, yes, that there was one of them at last, which did speak to me indeed. And my Lord then asked me what he said, and I told him, his words were of so small effect that I did not now remember them. That's really a courtroom performance. In her second examination, however, the stakes were higher. Rosalie was so determined to wrench from her a confession, literally, that he placed her on the rack, which could not legally be applied to a woman. When a Tower official refused to operate the instrument, the Lord Chancellor put his own hand to the wheel 
The damage wrought was so great that when Anne, who had not been forced into any admissions, was burnt at Smithfield, she had to be carried to the fire in a chair. Nicholas Shaxton, the Bishop of Salisbury, who had held similar beliefs but abjured them, delivered the sermon from a portable pulpit. Anne, stalwart to the end, tortured him frequently. There he misspeak, there he misseth, and speaketh without the book. An observer feared that his shameful recantation had led many to return to the old faith, but Anne's strength must have been a powerful counterforce. In Newgate, Anne had written a ballad that might have been her epitaph. Like as the armed knight appointed to the field, with this word I will fight, and faith shall be my shield. Her words and actions told Isabel and Joan, and women like them, that a woman could be a leader and a warrior for the faith. What was at stake in this great struggle of Mary's reign today, to the modern mind, hardly looks dying for? Both Joan and Isabel believed in the one true church, but Mary's church was not that, it was the work of the devil. Joan said that from 11 years of age she had disliked the mass, etc., as against Christ's Catholic church and the true faith. She said that she would willingly be reconciled to the unity of Christ's Catholic church, but not to the church of Rome. The key issue was the nature of the communion, whether the bread and wine became the body and blood of Christ, as the Catholics attested, or were a mere symbol, as did most of the reformers. Fox records that Isabel said she had not been to the Mass since the start of Mary's reign, and stated her belief of one only material bread and material wine in the sacrament. Joan and Isabel also refused to accept any sacraments but baptism and the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. The Church had seven traditional sacraments, baptism, confirmation, penance, confession, holy communion, marriage, ordination and last rites. Fox records that when Joan's mother Elizabeth was indicted, beyond the principal objection of denying the real and corporal presence of the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament of the altar, she was also charged with despising the Church's ceremonies and newfound sacraments. The Reformer's Guide was the Bible, and anything not supported or attested to within it was rejected as made by man, if not the devil. The authorities did not want to burn the martyrs. Officials used every tactic, pain, deprivation, inducements, and days and days of interrogation that must have been hugely wearying. Elizabeth Young, who had travelled to Holland to obtain Protestant texts, which she smuggled back for sale in London, endured 13 separate interrogations, many spread over several days. She would surely have followed Joan and Isabel to the stake were it not for the intervention of other women, probably her neighbours and almost certainly fellow believers, who came to beg for her release. The authorities responded that they must be heretics themselves, but the petitioners had ready a safe response. They were caring for her children, and if anything was done to her, they would be left with the burden. Elizabeth was released into their custody soon after Queen Mary died. Any apparent capitulation by one captive was used by the authorities to pressure others. As soon as the priest Whittle had signed the submission, which he was so quick to repudiate, one of Bonner's men rushed to show it to Joan. He wrote to the Bishop of London, I read it unto her twice, demanded if she could not be content to make the like submission, and she desired respite until this morning. She will not make anything in writing, nor put any sign thereunto. Joan won herself a night's respite by hinting at submission. Perhaps for a moment she thought of it, but the next morning she stood firm. 
When the persecutions began, what had been expected was a pattern seen before. A few would burn, many would recant, and the heresy would lose ground. The conviction, even the confidence, of Isabel and Joan and their fellow female martyrs was something new in the public realm, and shocking to many, but it was the product of decades of quiet development of women's religious knowledge and participation. An Italian visitor to London as early as 1500 reported, with disapproval, that at daily mass, women who can read taking the office of Our Lady with them, and with some companion reciting it, verse by verse, after the manner of churchmen. As English language Bibles flooded into the country, anyone who could read could become a teacher, an informal preacher to an audience from two to a hundred. The deep unease that this caused led to Henry's 1543 Acts for the Advancement of True Religion. It not only criminalised the private reading of the Bible by any lower class woman, but also ordered that even noble women should not read it in the hearing of another person, in case they should thus become a teacher. Whatever the legal position, however, women at all levels were learning from each other. Rose Hickman, the wife and daughter of London merchants, has left an account of this quiet advance. She wrote at the age of 85, My mother in the days of King Henry VIII came to some light of the gospel by means of some English books sent privately to her by my father's factors from beyond the sea, whereupon she used to call me with my two sisters into her chamber to read to us of the some good books very privately. My mother charged us to say nothing of her reading to us for fear of trouble. Each year of the Marian persecutions the number of women who chose martyrdom rose. In a way, this is perhaps not surprising, because it seems that women were more interested in religion than men. Certainly through the late medieval and early modern period, women attended church services in greater numbers. As early as 1511 and 1512, of 74 heretics, mostly Lollards, questioned, a third were female. But even in Henry VIII's reign, Anne Askew had been exceptional. Of about 70 reform martyrs, only a handful were female. Of the 275 identified martyrs under Mary, however, 55, about one-fifth, were female. The proportion rose steadily in each year of the persecution. In 1555, only two women were burned, and 80 men. In 1556, those figures were 20 to about 60. In 1557, 28 to less than 50. Among the last burned at Canterbury, as the Queen lay critically ill, were an aged widow, Catherine Knight, and a maid, Alice Snooth. Certainly, the model of Anne Askew might have, in the terminology of today, empowered these women, but it seems an insufficient explanation in itself. Not all women, of course, were prepared for martyrdom. Exile was another choice for those wealthy enough to organise it. It was not, however, always safe or comfortable. Rose Hickman, looking up back over her life from the age of 85, records that her husband was imprisoned in the fleet, but freed by a bribe of chests of sugar and pieces of velvet to the value of £200. He fled across the channel, but heavily pregnant, Rose could not make the journey. She sought obscurity in Oxfordshire, although she was incapable of resisting the temptation to meet in prison with the men who had become known as the Oxford Martyrs. Eventually, she took her baby and fled to Antwerp, carrying none with me but a large feather bed on which I laid in the bottom of the old hulk for five days and nights upon the seas in stormy and tempestuous weather. Many others chose the safer, if less comfortable to the conscience, path of outwardly conforming to Mary's church, while inwardly rejecting elements of the creed. Rose in part followed this route when, after bearing her child, she was advised by the Oxford martyrs that since she'd been unable to leave England, it was best to have the baby baptised 
by a popish priest, since the sacrament of the baptism was the least corrupted. Rose, however, had a few tricks to make the ceremony less, as she saw it, popish. I did not put salt into the handkerchief that was to be delivered to the priest at the baptism, but put sugar instead. Salt was put into the baby's mouth as a symbol of wisdom, but it was also thought by some to drive away the devil. This was a specimen of superstitious beliefs that the reformers hated. Others followed this course throughout Mary's reign. Scoffers called the Nicomedians after the Pharisee who denied Jesus, but among them were many who would be instrumental in making England Protestant, foremost among them the future Queen Elizabeth. She was the only Nicomedian honoured by Fox, but her inclusion must have comforted many readers who'd taken this course themselves, felt that they'd still suffered for their religion. Many had lost position, had lived in fear of exposure, and suffered the slights of conservative neighbours. I've concentrated here on one side of the great religious argument, and the side that represented many, many women. That's not to say, of course, that there were not Catholic women who continued to struggle on in one way or another. The records of the parish of St. Boltolf without Allgate record the burial in 1617 of a young maid, Elizabeth Crawford, whose address was given as Minery Street. She had clung to the faith of the nuns who lived there before her. A clerk recorded that she was buried in the old churchyard, There was no burial service used because she was considered to be a recusant. She was buried in the night. The female martyrs were particularly important to this change, and this was celebrated by the reformers. Yet this celebration was a double-edged sword, because it came from a belief that in their weaker nature, their bravery and composure was a greater testament to the power of the faith. Anne Askew's editor, John Bale, for example, was keen to present her as the weaker vessel of the Lord, whose strength came solely from God, although that's far from the image that Anne presents herself. Nevertheless, just the fact that women like Isabel and Joan were at the centre of public discussion must have been empowering. Even during Mary's reign, ballads were written, sung and clandestinely published, celebrating the bravery of the martyrs. Then, with Mary dead and Protestant Elizabeth on the throne, in 1559 Thomas Bryce's Compendium Register in Metre was published. At a popular level, the acts of Isabel and Joan and their fellow martyrs were available to all as a model of courage and conviction. His verse, clearly meant to be sung, runs, When Warne's widow yielded down her flesh and blood for holy laws, when she at Stratford died for death, we wished for our Elizabeth. That's the Queen. When Thomas Whittle and Bartley Green, Annis Foster, John Lashford and Brown Tudson and Winter, these seven were seen in Smithfield, beat their enemies down. Even flesh and devil, world and death, we wished for our Elizabeth. In 1563, the first edition of Fox's work was published, and a decade later, the Elizabethan church ordered that each cathedral church have a copy available to the public. It was also placed in many parish churches. Even parishioners who could not read could study the many woodcut illustrations and it was a popular addition to middle and even lower-class homes. The Yorkshire-based diarist, Lady Margaret Hobby, who we'll be getting to in a later episode, had it read aloud to her ladies. While Elizabeth Wallington, the wife of a turner who lived on Eastcheap in London, read it alongside the Bible. This was all only made possible by the death of Queen Mary. She'd been a personal driving force behind the persecution, 
defying even the views of her husband and officials. It's common now to see Mary's revival of traditional religion as a mere blip, an odd idiosyncratic reversal of the march of England towards its own unique church. But it did not seem so in 1553. The negative outcome of her reign had much to do with disastrous harvests, influenza epidemics, depression of international trade, inflation and the loss of Calais. Religious conflict was only part of the story. The Catholics too, by tying their cause to the unpopular Spanish marriage, did little for their own interest. But Isabel and Joan had played their part in creating the English church. As Milton wrote, the martyrs had, with the unresistible might of weakness, shaken the powers of darkness, scorning the fiery rage of the old red dragon. Well, I don't think this has been exactly a depressing episode, but it is probably going to be my bloodiest ever. So I thought I'd go for something lighter in the book of the week. So the book of the week is The Emperor's Babe, a novel by Bernadine Evaristo. It's, as is obvious from the title, fiction. I bought it more than a decade ago. I must have read a glowing review. I've provided a link to what I think that review probably was on the webpage, because a verse novel is not the kind of book that I'd naturally buy. But this is rollicking, enormous fun, amazingly confident in that it addresses Roman London, young girl and then woman in Roman London, using the language of today in a way that is comfortably anachronistic. So here's a little flavour of where she's been married off to an old rich man, is being educated, shades here, of the school of Alice Moore. And this is what she says. I'd never write good poetry because what did I know about war, death, the gods and the founding of countries? But you see, Dad, what I really want to write and hear is stuff about us, about now, about Nubians in Londinium about men who dress up as women, about extramarital peccadilloes, about girls getting married to older men. And on that note, in the words of the great god Pliny, the one too early and the other too late, ahem. And I don't care about the past, and I ain't writing for posterity. He also says I should write for readers five centuries hence. Well, I'm a thoroughly modern miss, and who knows what life will be like then? The Caledonians could rule the world for all we know. Evaristo has other very well-received books out now, but I definitely would recommend, for a fast, light, but really memorable read, going back to The Emperor's Babe. And it's a great argument for writers in residence at museums and other cultural institutions, something I'm very much in favour of. Everisto wrote it after a residency at the Museum of London. So we come now to this week's Woman of the Week. She's Camilla Aculiani, who was a natural philosopher, a apothecary, and who had a probably bruising but survived an encounter with the Inquisition in Rome. Her letters on natural philosophy 
were published and circulated in Krakow in Poland, dedicated to Anna Jagiellon Bathory, who was the Queen of Poland, although she had strong connections to Italy. What really attracted me to Kuliani and her work was her exploration of the origins of the biblical flood, a great scientific question of the time. She considers that it may have been human actions that caused the flood, humans growing too large, consuming too much in the way of the Earth's resources. It's not quite Gaia theory, but it's certainly heading in that direction and some very original thinking for the age and indeed what be, would be very original thinking for many centuries to come. Akuliani is also, I think it's not anachronistic to say, a feminist. She takes part in the debate about the position of women at the time. She institutes the book with two letters, in one of which she says, I don't know what malignant star causes men to refuse to recognise greatness, except in the things they accomplish themselves. Ah, letters on a postcard, you might say. So that concludes this episode. The next one, I suspect, might be in a fortnight's time. These first two subject episodes were material I'd already pulled together, but I'll be starting from scratch for Elizabeth Parr, one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies, but also a key player right through the reign of Edward and keeping her head down in the reign of Mary. So, as you might guess, she's very much on the reform side of the great debates of the Tudor age. And you might find her personal life somewhat surprising. So, I hope you'll be joining me in the next episode. Do feel free to drop me a line with any thoughts about what you think about the show. I'd also very much welcome reviews. So thank you for listening. Best wishes for the coming difficult weeks that we're living through. I hope that you'll be listening again soon.